Father, in the name of Jesus, we join hopefully thousands of congregations across our country today to pray for our government. This day has been set aside, and um, you told us to do that. And when Paul wrote to Timothy, he said we should pray for kings and rulers and those in authority. The purpose of that is that the will of God would be done and we might live quiet and peaceful lives, which is of great value in your sight. So, Lord, today we want to stop and pray for the government of the United States and for America we ask you to touch the executive branch of government, the legislative branch, the judicial branch. Father, we ask for our president and those executives that surround him. We pray that you would give him wisdom, give those leaders insight. Father, help him to know what ought to be done. Now, Lord, we've always prayed this way, whether for this president or another president, that's that's never stopped us from praying. We know that it's not in the ability of any man or woman to lead this country without the help of God. Without your help, we're going to make mistakes. Without your help, we're going to go the wrong way because every president that we have had or ever will have is flawed and imperfect. But we as the church, we lift the executive branch of government before you. We also pray for the legislative branch. We, we pray for every um, uh, member of Congress, uh, both in the House and in the Senate. We pray that these lawmakers would have wisdom to understand the times and know where to put their attention and their energy. Help them to make good laws, Lord. Don't let us reel under the effect of foolish laws but help them to make good laws so that we might live again quiet, peaceful, and honorable lives. We pray for the judicial branch of government. We pray for every judge. We pray for every clerk that works in a judge's office. We pray, Lord, we know that uh, judges are so important because of the way they interpret law and the, and the injunctions that they may set forth or the, or the decisions that they may make. Father, we're asking that all three branches of government would move forward with the very best days that they've ever seen. Give us, give us wisdom in our branches of government to know how to please the Lord and to do what's right. Father, we've been praying for well over two years. We're into the third year of praying four things over our nation. Lord, it may, depending on how, what people want to attach to it, it may sound one way or another. But Father, we ask in the name of Jesus that lies and liars will be exposed. And we ask in the name of Jesus that truth, real truth, will rise up and take root. We pray thirdly that the church will awaken to her destiny. Forgive the church of America for being quiet when we ought to be vocal, for being cowardly when we ought to be brave, for getting directed down wrong paths when we should have been focused on the kingdom. Let the church wake up to her destiny. And the fourth thing we've prayed, Lord, Justin led us this way last week. We ask that Americans 
from coast to coast, from north to south, east to west, that Americans will have a sense of what needs to be done. Help us, Lord, and we turn our hearts to you. We claim the promise, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways. Now, there's the rub, Lord. Help us to turn from our wicked ways. But Lord, you will hear from heaven and you will heal our land. And we're asking you today to hear the prayers of the remnant. Hear the prayers of this remnant. Hear the prayers of this remnant and give us victory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to talk to you today about when God's child sins. I'm going to go ahead and tell you we probably are going to need to go over just a, just a very few minutes today. Um, but um, I, I think this message is important. I think some things uh, that God has been putting on my heart and sharing with you goes along the idea of God, as I said, aligning us with His purposes. I was on the phone, oh, I don't know, a few months ago, a friend of mine that I went to school with, hadn't heard from him in a long time, but uh, he said, uh, he said, I listen to you online. I said, really? I said, well, I'm, uh, I'm so thankful. He said, uh, I guess you've read the latest book about one of your heroes. And uh, I pretty well had a clue where he was going. It was a book uh, written uh, kind of dissecting a great man's life, a man that was a leader in the church in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, into the 60s. If I called his name, probably everybody in here would know his name, uh, but I don't want to give credit. You'll understand why in just a moment. I said, yes, I, I read that. And uh, he said, I guess he wasn't as much a man of God as we thought he was. And I said, well, I said a couple of things. I said, number one, no man or woman of God is perfect. We all have blind spots and glitches. We're not talking about immorality here. We're talking about a weakness, number one. And number two, I said, I don't know that it's true. Uh, it's easy to pull someone apart when they've gone to heaven and can't defend themselves. And this, this man's whole life, there's a book written, his whole life was put into question by this statement. He may have been a great man of God, but he was not a good husband or father. And this is what his wife said, and I'm going to use fictional names. His wife outlived him, remarried. This is what was said. John Doe, that's the famous preacher that's written dozens of books. John Doe may have loved Jesus with all of his heart but another fictional name. But Jack Smith, her new husband, loves me. Now think about that. That would be like saying, you know, Martha Washington saying, George Washington loved his country with all of his heart, but my new husband loves me. And that began uh, tearing a part of this man uh, for supposedly not being the husband he ought to be for loving the church more than he loved his wife and loving the Lord. She, she, she did not call him a hypocrite by any stretch. She said he was a phenomenal man of God. There was just no room for anybody else in his life. 
And that was the basis for a whole destructuring of this man's life and basically calling him a, a passive hypocrite. I said, I don't know. I said, I know this. I said, I know some men and some women couldn't be pleased no matter what their situation in life was. Some women couldn't be pleased if they were married to Jesus. Some men couldn't be pleased no matter who they're married to. I, I said, we're getting something 30 years after the fact. And I said, you're putting way too much stock in this. He said, well, what should I do with it? I said, leave it alone. Leave it alone because the fact of the matter is there are different levels in love and marriage. Some people love exceedingly well. Some people love exceedingly poorly. But they're all married. And I said, you've got to come to the realization that in the service of God, some people love the Lord deeply and are excellent husbands, wives, parents, whatever the list is. But others don't quite have the insight to do everything well. I, I, I said, we've got to understand that we have churches full of people just like that. They love the Lord, but as far as their level of love for the Lord, they are all over the place. Do you understand what I'm saying, loved ones? That's two. There are levels of love in marriage, and then there are levels of love in our service to the Lord. Some people know how to love the Lord passionately and be everything else they're supposed to be in life. Others are, are trying to learn. But what's more frightening to me is that there are those in all of our churches that have committed themselves to the Lord. They know they're going to heaven. They love the Lord but they have never, they have never moved into that place of intimacy with God where serving the Lord is a delight. The Lord has always been a hard man to them. The, every message is about, you know, tanning my hide and stretching me out on a pole to dry. They've never known the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases. His mercies that never come to an end. You say, oh, pastor, I will long for those days when I can say the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and his mercies never come to an end. Those words came from the heart of a man named Jeremiah. And it was written after the utter fall of Jerusalem when everything that God had promised looked suspect, and nothing that God had promised seemed to be being fulfilled. Jeremiah had a relationship with the Lord that said this, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning and great is your faithfulness, God. And loved ones, I believe what God is trying to get us to do is move from that place where our love for the Lord and our estimation of what's going on hinges on what just happened to us the last week. It was when God made a declaration, it's you're past the point of no return, you're going into exile. It was in that moment of what appeared to be hopelessness that God said that verse that everybody's got on their refrigerator, I know the plans I have for you. And they are plans to bless you, not harm you. 
give you a hope and and a future. See, God comes to us in the most amazingly difficult times and he starts whispering hope into our ear. He starts whispering hope into our ear. He starts whispering, I love you, into our ear. And loved ones, I want to say it just as plainly as I know how to say it. (coughs) Until you move past this position of an agonizing fear of God, until you move past this position where you think God has moods toward you, until you move to the position where you understand there is nothing I can do that will make him love me more. You had a good week. That doesn't matter. He doesn't love you anymore because you'd had a good week. Nothing I can do that will make him love me more. (coughs) There's nothing I can do that will make him love me less. Church in America, especially in the Deep South, through the last 150 years or so, has become, maybe not quite that long, but close to it. Church either is part of our business world. There was a time in the South we created a culture where um, if you were a white prosperous man in America uh, in, in the, in the uh, Reconstruction days, you joined the church because it was good for your business. We were a Christian nation. The culture had been Christianized. Not everybody was a Christian, certainly. We had just fought a war over slavery. But everybody knew that Christianity was good for their business, so you became a church member because people doing business with you wanted to know you were a church business or a Christian business. They wanted to know that you were a good church attender. Others attended church not for the sake of the kingdom but because it was the seedbed of political activism. This is where my group meets so that we can make our political strategy. Um, The list goes on and on and on and we have a history of being Christians for anything but relationship. You say, well, is that so bad? Well, let me just ask you this. I'm being very blunt. It's like being married, but the only thing, only reason you're married is for sex. Now, sex is wonderful. It's one of God's greatest gifts. I mean, if he made anything better than the love between a husband and wife, he he has not revealed it yet. I'm talking about in relationships with us. I'm, I'm, I'm all for marital sex. But that will never sustain a marriage. That will never take you through the tough years. That will never keep you together for the long haul. But we are somehow trying to build a Christian culture on on spiritual side issues instead of the main issue. And God is trying everything that he can do without violating our will to bring us to the table where what we are is based on relationship with him. God spoke to me a few weeks ago, and this is a summary of what he said. It's, I, I, I don't feel like I need to share everything, and I'd have to take things out of its context. But this is a summary of what I felt the Lord spoke to me when I was praying to him about some issues. He, he said my translation, I have spent a generation showing my love, my power, and my fatherhood on, my, on the people of God 
My power has fallen. My love has fallen. My fatherhood has fallen. And they have fallen. Now don't take for a minute that it's not right to fall out. But this is what the Lord continued to say. My people need to understand in the season before them, this is not a time to fall, but now it is a time to stand. I don't think he was saying, I don't want anybody else falling. I don't think he was saying, I don't want anybody falling under the power of God. But he said, it's time for us to, to move beyond the past, or, or the, uh, um, to, to move past the idea of the honeymoon. It's time for us to move past the idea of falling out with exhilaration. And it's time for us to stand. And it's time for us to be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. That's why I believe that He's doing all these things in our midst that basically amounts to alignment. That's why He's teaching us to sing the right song on the right side. That's why He's teaching us how to deal with a letter from hell. That's why he's dealing with us about things like repentance. And loved ones, one of the most powerful strongholds that we have to fight against is an unhealthy fear of God. Now we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and we know that we better have a relationship that fears the Lord. But there's healthy fear and there's unhealthy fear. There's fear that makes you bow and there's fear that makes you cringe. And God doesn't want you to labor under the heavy intensity of fear that makes you cringe. I, 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 you know, you've been around a dog where you reach your hand out to pet the dog and the dog goes down. The, so often the probability is that the dog has been beaten or mistreated. So every time a hand is lift, lifted, he goes down. He submits, but he goes down. And loved ones, that will not enable you to walk in the new day that God has before us if your reaction to his hand is one of cringing, is, is one of, you know, you say, well, I just, I just need to bow. Oh. We do need to bow. But we need to understand that there's nothing he can do, that, that I can do that can make him love me more. There's nothing I will do that will make him love me less. He longs for you to come to that relationship. And what I believe one of our biggest problems is, is that in regard to sin in our lives, the water has gotten so muddied. And we either live in a world where it doesn't matter what we do, we can't please him. Or we live in a world where theologians are now beginning to tell us that his love is so perfect we should not even consider sin as a possibility in our lives. There are, there, and I'm convinced they are well-meaning, I'm convinced they love the Lord, but there are many theologians online today and on television today that teach you it's an insult to grace to repent or to ask for forgiveness because you've got to take by faith that all of your sins are forgiven. And loved ones, somebody took a, a kernel of truth and built error all around that. The children of God have got to come to grips with the reality and the possibility of sin in our life. And we've got to know what to do with it. Now, let's... I, I guess the best way to put it is like this. We don't have time to look at it now. 
But when you get a chance, go to Ezra 3 and the, the, the temple is being rebuilt. The people of God are being restored. And Ezra 3 says something that is so amazing. And this is what we're going to see as we go further along. We're already beginning to see it now. It says in Ezra 3 that the people could not differentiate between the sound of joy and the sound of weeping. I mean, there was weeping over the sorrow for their sin, but there was weeping over joy of repentance. And Ezra said, it, it was so loud we couldn't discern one from the other. Loved ones, when God begins to move in his church, that's the way it's going to be. You're going to find you're here one Sunday on your belly saying, I'm lower than worm. I'm lower than, I'm, I'm lower than worm dung. And then other days you're going to be shouting and dancing and saying, by my God, I can run through a troop and leap over a wall. When God begins to do his work, it will be impossible in your life. It will be impossible in my life. It will be impossible in the life of a church to tell the difference between the noise of weeping and the noise of rejoicing. Ezra says they couldn't tell the difference between tears of brokenness and tears of joy. We've got to understand, what, well, what, you know, Lord, which is it? God is doing an amazing, unthinkable, incomprehensible thing. He is bringing balance to your life and he's showing you the goodness and the terror of the Lord. He, that's the New Testament God. That's not the Old Testament God as opposed to a New Testament God. That's God Old and New Testament. We see his goodness. We see his terror. We see his mercy. We see his chastisement. Let me read Psalm 51, and I am going to do my best in the little bit of time I got left, plus what I am going to add to my little bit of time I got left to, to, to give us. And loved ones, this is an understanding. I want you to, some of us just need to understand, maybe for the first time in our life, how a Christian should view sin. That's why the message is why God's, or when God's child sins. What do we do? How do we handle it? The best example of grace at work as far as I'm concerned is seen in Psalm 51. New Testament grace is very clearly revealed in Old Testament Psalm. David, now after he had been guilty of committing adultery and murder, the sin was a year old, scholars tell us. David has been trying to straddle the line. I know that I did wrong, but I, I, I did this, and I, but... And after about a year, the scriptures tell us that Nathan came to him and told him that story and, uh, about the man that had stolen someone else's sheep, even though he had plenty of sheep. And David got angry and said, that man ought to die. And Nathan, the prophet, pointing that long prophet's finger at David, said, you are the man. You have done this, David. And David wrote a psalm of repentance I want to tell you, psalms of repentance, prayers of repentance don't always come early. Uh, we, are, we can be quick to say, Lord, forgive me, and we are forgiven. But I want to tell you, there are times that the consequence of our sin needs time to, to really ripen in our heart before we understand the depth that we're dealing with. Now, that doesn't mean we can't get forgiveness. We ought to ask for forgiveness right away. But this shows that a man had wrestled with something for a year, and now God was teaching him how to deal with his sin. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your unfailing love. One day when you get a chance, just look up unfailing love or steadfast love. 
in the Old Testament, it will blow your socks off. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. So Lord, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit that will sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Then sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O Lord, uh, O God, you who are my God and my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered upon your altar. I am convinced that in the coming season, our interactive relationship with the Lord, not our position, we're not saved by anything but the grace and the blood of Jesus, but our interactive relationship must become intimate and balanced. I am convinced that the majority of Christians in America, hear me loved ones, I am convinced that the majority of Christians in America live a miserable Christian life. I don't mean, oh, you're miserable. I mean, to them it's miserable because they want Christ, they want the benefits of Christianity, but they do not understand that Christianity is worked out through a life of intimacy and balance. I tell you what, I made a statement. I've made it for years, and I feel corrected now. You say, Pastor, you've been t- telling us something for years, and now, now you're telling us you were wrong. Well, I don't think I was wrong as much as I needed to add a sentence to it. I've been saying for years that Christianity doesn't work when you try to be a Christian and live it your way. And that's technically true, but you know what God has been putting in my heart lately? Oh, it still works. Christianity still works, even when we try to live it our way. But it works because God takes you down the path of chastisement. Oh, it works, just not the way you want it to work. You take a detour that you never thought you'd take. You take a detour that you never wanted to take. But God has made a promise, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He made a promise, what you commit to me, I will guard it until that day. You're going to get home. Let me just leave it there. You're going to get home, but you're going to have to go through the valley of chastisement. Now, 
I want you to know, first of all, let me give you some just basic theology. The first thing we need to understand is the possibility of sin in the life of a Christian. I know there are people today that tell you you ought to focus on your standing with God and that you ought to focus on grace, you ought to focus on the forgiveness that has been given. We certainly should have our focus there. But we need to understand that as with most error, there is an element of truth contained. And we are to focus on the righteousness of Christ within us, but we dare not do so to the exclusion of the awareness of sin's possibility. I want to tell you, New Testament teaching, there are very, very clearly four real dynamics you need to understand. Number one, we are forgiven. Colossians 2.13, and you who were, were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision in your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Never, ever wonder whether your sins are forgiven when you've come to Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. And let me go a step deeper. Your lives are changed. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation the old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. You are a brand new creature, but we can still fall into sin. We don't have to, but we can. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we've not sinned, we make him a liar and our word's not, and his word is not in us. Yeah, we can fall into sin. But number four, though we fall, his grace and mercy cover us and his blood cleanses us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. There's a period there. And if anyone sins, King James, I like better, says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He himself is the propitiation, that means the full satisfaction, full payment for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. If we say that we have fellowship with him, John said a chapter earlier, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. So I am forgiven, my life is changed. Though sin is possible, if I fall, his blood washes me whiter than snow. Now that's the fact of the Christian life. Let, let, me, let me give you an, another explanation from John's perspective. Let's just look at what John wrote because first John, one of the things John was writing about was helping people deal with the idea of what it means to be a Christian and still struggle with sin. Here's John's advice concerning sin. Number one, don't. Don't sin. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin except when your wife makes you angry. I, I, I write this in you that you will not sin unless the girl in front of you is dressed provocatively and you just can't help it. No, don't do it. Don't do it. But if you do it, John says, number two, if you do sin, repent. We have an advocate with the Father who is the atoning sacrifice, propitiation for our sins, not only ours, but the whole world. He says, now, don't sin. Uh, if you do, 
repent and learn to walk away from sin. Learn to walk away from temptation. Uh, that may mean that you need to put yourself under someone's accountability on the internet. It may mean that you need to understand that nine times out of ten you may be a match for a situation. It's that tenth time that you've got to be careful. We need to learn to walk away from those cycles that we've been talking about on Wednesday night. He says, we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. You know what John was saying? He said, we know that Jesus is coming, and when he comes, we're going to be done with our troubles and trials. But until that time, we have to work to keep ourselves clean so that we don't walk down the wrong path. If we claim to have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we're not living out the truth. But if we will commit to walk in the light as He is in the light, then we are habitually, consistently, constantly being washed by the blood of Jesus. Here's the fourth thing that John says. Okay, now... Don't sin. If you do sin, repent. Learn to walk away from temptation. Uh, don't put yourself in situations where sin's going to be easy. Number four, recognize the potential for sin. Okay? We already read this. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And I know some scholars say this is, we're all sinners. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about before Jesus. But that's not the context of what John is writing. It's not the audience to whom he is writing. So recognize the potential for sin. If there was no potential for sin, why would Jesus in the Lord's Prayer ask the Lord to deliver us from temptation? Why would He ask for forgiveness if sin is not possible? Recognize the potential. Here's number five. Walk in holiness for sin is no longer the DNA of the Christian. When we are born again, we have a different DNA. He is faithful to purify us, and he says that the seed of God abides in us. Now, here's a summary statement, number six. To say I have no sin is a lie, and to say my failures have no bearing on my righteousness is also a lie. Uh, it, it, it's okay to focus on righteousness, and I want our, well, I search our SESL students, most of them are gone. But they're the ones that are getting this blast from, from young pastors and middle-aged pastors that have forgotten the bolt of cloth we were cut from. And they're saying we just need to focus on our righteousness. That's only half true. It's only half true. I, I asked a pastor in England one time, I said, Christianity is the official religion of England. We don't have an official religion. You do. I said, why do you not have more of a, of a revivalist mindset or more of a Christian culture? I would think being a state religion would certainly have its effects. And this is what he said. We are, we, he said, we can teach anything we want about religion and morality as long as 51% of it is Christian. Think about that. 51%. He said the reason our churches are powerless and the reason the center of Christianity has moved from our nation long ago is that we have labored under the illusion that if I can be 51% Christian, I am a victorious conqueror. 
And I said, oh. I said, so that's where we got it from. My failures have no bearing on my righteousness is an absolute lie. Okay, we've already read these, um, these other verses. I do want to read one more, 1 John 3. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. This is John's appeal. We don't have to live under this old mindset anymore. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or know him. King James is rough. It says no one who sins is in him. It makes it sound like if you ever sin, you're not a Christian. But it's a matter of verbs and tenses. What John is saying is everybody has the potential of sin. This is what you do when you sin. But I want to tell you this, John said, if your life is not changed, if you just keep on living the way you used to live, as far as I'm concerned, you're not a Christian at all. So this is what we're faced with. We are new creatures who have been forgiven. We are kept by the power and blood of Jesus and if we don't fight against our sin, it may be an evidence that we've never been saved at all. Now, David explained what happened to him, okay? He said there are real consequences. He, he explained that only the cleansing power of God is sufficient. Let me tell you quickly what David said sin will do. And this is in the life of God's child. This is the man who it was said of him that he was the man after God's own heart. Loved ones, when you and I sin, and especially, are you all with me? Especially when we don't deal with it. This is what you can look for. Sin will make you dirty in your soul. You may be clean. David was a king probably washing in marble tubs. But he cried out to God, wash me and cleanse me for I admit my transgression and my sin is ever before me. We're going to talk about in a few weeks the need for spiritual foot washing. We're going to go back to how we keep short accounts with God um, in, in a few weeks. So sin unconfessed will, will stain your soul. It will make you feel dirty and sometimes you don't even know why you're feeling that. Now let me say this about the difference between conviction and condemnation. Condemnation is general, it's vague, and it offers no hope. You know, when the devil gives condemnation, we just feel dirty, but we don't necessarily know why we're dirty. There's no hope for coming out of it, and it's just a state of hopelessness. But Conviction is very specific. Conviction says this is where you, where you erred. This is what you did wrong. And there's hope through Jesus Christ for it. But unconfessed sin will make you dirty in your soul. Secondly, it will take control of your thinking. He said, my sin is ever before me. I remember Leonard Ravenhill, one of the greatest revivalists of the 20th century, said that he got saved, um, uh, or was it? someone he was preaching to. I forget. But someone got saved. They were, uh, had listened to one of the greatest salvation messages ever, but did not give his heart to the Lord. Went home and said, I'll sleep this off. And he said, I sat up, bolt upright in the middle of my bed, and every sin I ever committed marched around my bed all night long. 
My sin is ever before me. So it takes control of your thinking. And it, it can even lead to strongholds of guilt. Loved ones, unconfessed sin will give you a stronghold of unworthiness, of self-loathing. And if you don't deal with the unworthiness and self-loathing, it will lead to unrestrained behavior. People who say, I'm free to live any way I want to live, people that say, I'm free to do anything I want to do, if you were to be able to get them into a moment of absolute honesty, they are racked with shame and with guilt and with self-loathing. And their attitude, unspoken and unconscious at times, is there's no hope for me. I hate myself. I might as well live out what I am. <coughs> Sin will molest your conscience. He said against you and you only have I sinned. Boy, I read that. I got mad first time I read it when I realized when I connected the dots. He, he committed adultery with a woman and had her husband murdered. The kingdom is going to fall apart because of it. His own family is going to have trouble because of it. And what in the world is he thinking against you and you only have I sinned? In other words, Lord, this is just between me and you. That's not what he was saying. When he said against you and you only have I sinned, he knew what he had done to the family of Bathsheba and, and Uriah. He knew what he had done to the kingdom. The, the rebellion, the government leaders that sided with Absalom, uh, two or three of them were from her family. The whole thing can be dumped in David's lap. But when he said against you and you only have I sinned, what he was saying is, Lord, you are the ultimate one I must deal with. I've got other things to take care of. I've got other things to make right. But nothing can be made right until I get right with you. Now our conscience can be corrupted and defiled. It can even be killed. But a wise person knows how to cherish their conscience like a fine watch. But sin destroys your conscience or, or, or molests it. Sin also destroys your joy. He said, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Make me to hear joy and gladness again. And loved ones, I've said this before, when you encounter an angry Christian, when you encounter someone that has lots of opinions and just, just feel like they just need to set the church right, you usually, not always, but you usually are encountering a Christian that some sin in their life has robbed them of joy. I knew a pastor like that, not in South Carolina, another district, but he was the biggest critic of the superintendent. He was the biggest critic of the programs of the district. I mean, he just always seemed to have a better idea and nobody liked being around him. And, you know, he said a lot of good things, but it was just like there was something, some missing piece to the puzzle. And later it was revealed he had been having an ongoing affair for like five years. Sin... Sin will destroy your joy. Sin can even cause illness physically. Not always, but sin has the effect of crushing the bones. We do know this, and we don't have time to deal with it today, but 1 Corinthians 11.30 makes this clear. When a person enters spiritual disciplines in the New Testament like communion, and they do so with unconfessed sin in their heart, it actually can result in sickness and even death. That's why the Bible says a merry heart does good like a medicine. But David wasn't merry. He was miserable. Sin will also sour your spirit with judgmentalism. So he said, create in me a clean heart. Renew a proper spirit within me. 
You see how David got so mad when he found out about this guy that had stolen a little lamb? He said, the man that did this shall die. That was not a, a, a hanging offense. That was not a hanging offense. Restitution needs to be made. But when there's secret sin in your life, it sours you with judgmentalism that you go far beyond what's needed. You, you want to use atomic weapons to get rid of field mice. I told you the story that Adrian Rogers told when he was preaching on Psalm 51. He was talking about a pastor that um, at a church social, um, one of the church members was so mad they opened the janitor's closet and there were five new brooms in the closet. Pastor had been talking about we need to, he'd even received a couple of special offerings. We're not making ends meet. We can't meet budget. And he said, this guy went absolutely ballistic. He says, you're telling us we don't have money for this, that, and the other. And there are five new brooms in the closet. And the pastor said, I don't know what to tell you. Maybe we sweep a lot. Maybe there was a sale on brooms. I don't know. But don't fall out of fellowship over this. But the guy stayed out of fellowship with it. And the pastor asked the treasurer, he said, look, so-and-so found five brooms in the closet and he was so upset. Is there something I don't know? And the, and the treasurer smiled and said, yes, pastor, there is. You've got to understand how devastating it is to see everything you've given to the church tied up in five brooms. It'll sink in. It'll sink in. Now, I, I know wicked people that are more loving and kind than Christians who have sin in their lives. Jacob lays out all of this offering. Boy, Jacob was a, was a godly man, but oh, barely. I mean, Jacob had his issues, and he sends all of these herds and flocks ahead to his brother trying to buy his favor. And Esau, the one who had been done wrong and wasn't living for God at all, Esau had the attitude, oh brother, I've got more than I need. Keep these for yourself. Don't be surprised when someone with unconfessed sin shrivels up in their soul. You know what happens when there's sin in your life? You can be like the first hour workers in the story of the 11th hour parable. You remember that story? The first hour workers got upset because somebody got paid a penny and they thought they should get paid more. And I remember reading that story thinking, here's a man, his whole life, this group of workers, their whole life is in anger and rebellion over someone else's penny. That's what sin does. And sin will certainly seal your lips. Praise dried up. He said, Lord, if you'll restore my joy, if you'll give me forgiveness, then sinners will be converted. He, he knew that the kingdom of God had been put on hold in Israel because of the sins of his life. I remember one time getting so angry at a church, not, not you guys, this was in, a, this was in another uh, galaxy far, far away a long time ago. But I got so mad at the church, the church was mad at me, there was just a state of war existed. And I want to tell you, we had church, and we had a song service, but we didn't have worship for over a year. And I want to tell you, for over a year, because I kept track of it on the calendar, for over a year, not a single soul came to Jesus Christ as personal Savior, unless it was through missionettes or rangers, some of the auxiliary groups. And you know, I finally, I finally apologized and and uh, said, so, so it was your fault. Well, 
I was a pastor, so everything was my fault. But I felt, I mean, I have to take responsibility for that. That wasn't sarcastic, saying, I'm a pastor, everything's my fault. No, I have to take responsibility. No, I think it was as much their fault or more than mine. But somebody had to break it. Somebody had to say, I'm sorry. And you know what I found out? I found out when I apologized to them and asked them to forgive me, I started getting phone calls. Pastor, will you forgive me? I've never been like this before in my life. And within two weeks, the altar started being filled again. Yeah, sin will seal your lips. Now, here's the big question. How do I come back? Three key words. Find the place of confidence. Find the place of confidence. This is in verse uh, 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. David said, I can never dig my way out of this hole. I can never do enough good to compensate for the bad that I have done. But Lord, I have confidence that you are able, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, you are able to give me a fresh start. The second thing is find the cleansing power of confession. He says, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. We've, we've said this, I know, I, I know you know this because I say it regularly. The, the word confess uh, in the New Testament is the word homo logeo. And logeo is word, homo means the same Confession isn't I got caught. Confession is not I should have said, uh, shouldn't have done that. Confession is, Lord, I agree with your estimation of my life. This is sin. It's what you called it. And Lord, I'm not, I'm not blaming my wife. I'm not blaming Bathsheba for taking a bath on the rooftop. I'm not blaming Uriah for not doing the natural thing and going to bed with his wife when he comes back from a battle. Lord, this is all on me. I have transgressed. I have sinned. And Lord, I confess my sins, my transgressions. It's ever before me and it's ever before you. So we have confidence in his ability to cleanse. We name what's wrong in our lives and then we allow God to bring cleansing. Wash me thoroughly. Wash me thoroughly. Now, guys, I know everything I preach today, and I know I've gone over, um, we, we just had so much to do today, but um, I know that you say, Pastor, I know this, but it hasn't worked. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you about an episode with my oldest son, Jeremy. He was a little fella, preschooler, and uh, for the longest, he didn't wear shoes because, you know, just growing up in the South, who needs shoes as a little fellow? But then as a toddler, he started going to play, so we had to get shoes on him. Now, thank God that when you start putting shoes on your kids, you're so happy. They look so cute in their shoes, you start tying it. And then when you get tired of tying it, what do you do? You go to Velcro. <laughs> or, you, or you use slip-ons, you know. But there came a time when my son wanted to wear big boy shoes that needed to be tied. And so for I don't know how long we would tie his shoe. And we said, Jeremy, you've got to learn to tie your shoe. And he was so excited about that. And I showed him carefully how to do it. 
And then he looked at me and said, how do you do it? Now, this is after I've shown him a half dozen times and he's trying. And I said, okay. You know, I did the rabbit going into the hole and rabbit getting shot or something, you know. And <laughs> we went through this and I said, that's how you do it. And he tried to tie. And he said, how do you do it? And I'm getting tired of him saying, how do you do it? And I'm thinking, I'm just not a good teacher. So I get in my, you teach him. And she's, this is how you do it. And he smiles and grins and messes with it and says, how do you do it? And I don't know, I imagine it was probably 18 months after careful teaching. How do you do it? It dawned on me. He wasn't saying, how do you do it? He was saying, how do you make it work? I'm doing what you've told me, but it doesn't work. And then we begin to teach him differently. Loved ones, can I just tell you this? For 25 years, I've been saying, this is how you do it. And for 25 years, most Christians say, how do you do it? So I find myself teaching some of the same basics over and over again, only to have so many people say, how do you do it? And I've come to the conclusion that the people of God are not saying, now how do we do this? The people of God are saying, how do I make it work? Loved ones, I want to tell you something. God when he says it's not time for you to fall anymore, it's time for you to stand. God knows that you know what to do. But now he's going to teach you how to use your fingers to tie the knots. He's going to use you. It's, you're no longer going to float on someone else's abilities. You're going to float. You're not going to float, but you're going to stand. You're going to be... People here, I guarantee you, folks in our church that have struggled with a devotional life for 30 years, you're suddenly going to see. And you say, well, okay, impart to me. You don't need an impartation. You know what you need to do? What my son Jeremy did. You start tying. Yeah, I've been tying, but it doesn't work. Yeah, and because, but you always had somebody come along and tie it for you. Now, now. God is calling you to a place of intimacy where this is going to change. Your life is going to be changed. The strongholds in your life are going to be broken. The cycles of sin are going to be shattered. But loved ones, it's not going to happen by an encounter in the altar. Now, I believe in deliverance and I believe in encounters in the altar. But whatever has enabled you, whoever has enabled you, is going to stop tying your shoes. And every time we say, how do I do it? You're going to hear a voice saying, you know how to tie that shoe. Now, there were times when he would get frustrated. I'd tie it for him anyway. He'd try and I'd say, good job, good job. And then I'd tie it. There were times we were running so late. Tie your shoe. Ah! Then I'd tie it. Let's go. But I'm a, I'm a frail father. I'm a human father. But God is moving this church to the place. That's why we're still in some of the difficulty we're in. That's why we're still fighting some of the battles that we're in. Because we want desperately somebody to tie our shoes. And you know what? Before he lets you go down, he'll tie them. But we've got to move to the place where we begin to tie our shoes. We've got to move to the place where sin no longer has dominion over us. 
we've got to move where we've we, we got to understand we've already been delivered from the penalty of sin. We're going to heaven. The day's coming when we're going to be delivered from the presence of sin when we get there. But right now, we're being delivered from the power of sin. Sin shall not have dominion over you. And it's not through your effort. It's through intimacy with him. Jeremy learned to tie his shoes by sitting in Papa's lap. You're going to learn the power over these things in your life by sitting in his lap. You, you, know, you know what? You say, well, I'm going to a discipleship group. I'm going to the men's meeting. I'm going to this and the other. Guys, I want to ask you, I just want to ask you, are you going to these groups and just wearing slip-ons? I mean, are, are you going and just commiserating with people that have the same trouble? But you're not learning to tie your shoes. You're just wearing slip-ons. I want to tell you, it's time to rise up. I better quit because this is dangerous. <laughs> Ministry team, would you please come? Thank you for letting me go over. At least I was honest with you about it today. I said we're going over. Oh, I love you. Ministry teams are moving into place. This is what we want to do. Again, some folks may need deliverance. Some folks may need prayer for victory. I'm not minimizing that at all. God does incredible things through deliverance. But I think what today may be about, this lazy summer Sunday, what today may be about is deciding I'm going to move into Papa's lap and I'm going to stay there until I learn to tie my shoes. It's not about self attainment. It's not about self-works. It's about growing up in God. It's about saying if God ever wants to knock me out, he can, but I'm in an age where I've got to stand. I've got to stand. I can't fight from my back. I can't advance from my back. I've got to stand. Would you stand with me, please? Father, this beautiful congregation, please bless them and help them. Cover them in the love of God and the grace of the Holy Spirit. Father, you know those of us that we, we, need, we need to get that art of tying our spiritual shoes under our belt. We need to stop being a victim to the same old life, the same old cycles of sin. We know that it's always by you. It's always, it's not by might or by power. It's always by my spirit. Lord, you've got us in a place where it's, it's hard to tell in any given week whether we've cried more tears of, of repentance or joy. But you're the author of both of them. Lord, a simple prayer. Help us tie our shoes. Help us to quit wearing slip-ons. Help us to quit going to class and going to service just just, just to commiserate with somebody else that's got the same problem. Set us free. Teach us how to tie a knot. Teach us how to tie a knot, knowing that you'll be there to help us when we absolutely can't. In Jesus' name we pray. I got to let you go. But loved ones, if you want prayer or you need prayer for healing, the altars are open. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, please come to one of these groups. Come to one of these uh, ministry teams. They'll be glad to tell you how to come to the Lord. I love you. God bless you.